That's, uh, that's a scientist walking up the steps. Um, welcome to the uh, first lecture in the public lecture series for 2004-05 uh, academic year. Uh, the first series of lectures is going to be co-sponsored by the uh, Princeton University Press. Um, we'll have a lecture to, tonight and tomorrow and Wednesday from our distinguished uh, speaker. And I just want to tell people that tomorrow night the lecture will be in Makash 10. This is Makash 50. The third lecture on Wednesday will be here um, again. Um, and for the rest of the fall, we have a series of lectures uh, planned. Um, George Dyson will be here. He wrote a book called Darwin Among the Machines. He'll be talking here on October 5th. Uh, and then Alan Wolf from Boston College will be speaking November 9th, 10th, and 11th, also um, uh, co-sponsored with the Princeton University Press. Um, Robert Lucky from Telcordia will give a presentation called Broadbanding America, What, Why, and How. And uh, our last uh, series of lectures for the fall semester will be um, Henry Petrosky from Duke University, whose lecture is entitled The Design of Everything. He's giving a series of three lectures, from success to um, failure. All of this is on the website, where we'll have more information about each lecturer as the information becomes available. Okay, so tonight I'm going to hand off to uh, Paul Mudon from the uh, English department, who's going to introduce uh, the first lecture. Okay. <clears throat> well, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> it is less a public duty than a personal delight for me to introduce Hermione Lee this evening. Uh, when she gives the first of three lectures on the meets and bonds of public and private. Such is the variousness of her career, however, that I can't be certain which Hermione Lee I'm meant to introduce. How can I be sure I've got the right person? Am I introducing the biographer of Virginia Woolf, or Willa Cather, or now Edith Wharton, or the critical biographer of Philip Roth, or Elizabeth Bowen, or the editor of Bowen, Wolf, Wharton, Welty, Kipling, or Trollope. This matter of getting the right Hermione Lee reminds me at once of one of the major pitfalls into which a poor introducer may stumble. A mutual friend of Hermione and mine, John McGahern, needs little prompting to tell the story of a visit by William Butler Yeats to a college in upstate New York. It was 1920. Yeats was already famous enough for the president of the college to want to make the introduction himself. He boned up big time and on the night embarked on a fulsome uh, introduction on how pleased he was to welcome, as it transpired, the author of The Eve of St. Agnes and Hyperion, a fragment. Now, the seepage between Yeats, as we call him in Ireland, and Keats is one that will bring particular amusement to John Barnard, whom we're also delighted to welcome this evening. John Barnard, the great editor of The Penguin, John Keats, and the great husband, if I may say, of Hermione Lee. Now, the fact that a life writer 
is 56 years old, married to the scholar and retired professor of literature, John Barnard, and has three stepchildren and five step-grandchildren, facts I have carried over to readily, perhaps, from Hermione Lee's own short biography, are no less relevant, I think, than the fact that George Moore, say, used to keep a python in his Paris apartment. They raise questions on where a life writer begins and ends, even where the introducer of a life writer uh, might begin and end. And these are questions which will be addressed by Professor Lee uh, over these three lectures. Where, for example, does one begin and end in writing about a life when the arcs of all lives are so similar? There is indeed a suggestion in an anecdote told by Roger McHugh of the same George Moore, which suggests that one size fits all. Uh, This is McHugh. He says, A relative of the Somervilles told me that his aunt had the unpleasant duty of announcing to George Moore that his friend Violet Martin, the Martin Ross of Somerville and Ross fame, was dead. As she entered Moore's study to break the sad news to him, Moore looked up from his writing. I have sad news for you, Mr. Moore, she said. I regret to inform you that your friend Martin Ross is dead. Moore clasped his head. How sad, he said, how very sad. He rose and paced his study agitatedly. How sad. He repeated, here am I in the midst of this, and he waved his hand dramatically at the books around him, alive, and my friend, my dear friend, Edmund Goss, dead. (laughs) The lady interrupted gently, I beg your pardon, Mr. Moore, it is Martin Ross who is dead, not Edmund Goss. Murr drew himself up and looked at her in an indignant fashion. My dear woman, he said, surely you don't expect me to go through all that again. (laughs) When a great life writer like Hermione Lee goes, or what a great life writer like Hermione Lee goes through, of course, is the emotional engagement with the details of each of her subjects, the details that, in her own case, would go beyond such facts as her growing up in London, her education at Oxford, her lecturing at Williamsburg, Liverpool and York universities, her appointment in 1998 to the Goldsmiths Chair of English Literature at Oxford. A shilling life, in Auden's phrase, will give us the facts of her fellowship at New College, her fellowship of the Royal Society of Literature, the British Academy, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, her honorary doctorate from Liverpool, her being made in 2003 a companion of the British Empire for services to literature. Those of us engaged in literature in the British Empire, the Irish Empire, and increasingly the American Empire, have long since been aware of how justly that honour is deserved. So here with her revelations, not only on Shelley's heart and Pepys's lobsters, but on her own heart uh, and our hearts, is Professor Hermione Lee.
you. I don't feel I can give my lecture now. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, for that wonderfully gratifying and characteristically Python-esque introduction. Um, I'm delighted and honoured to be giving the J. Edward Farnham lectures at Princeton, though I haven't, I haven't yet found out who J. Edward Farnham is, so I, I want to be told that at some point in these three days. But I'm very grateful to the steering committee for inviting me, to Dorothy Coakley for making all the arrangements for my visit, to Walter Lippincott and Hannah Winoski at Princeton University Press, and to my friend Paul Muldoon. Um, while I was talking about these lectures earlier this year to a friend from Princeton who is in the audience today, he said, um, so they will make a major statement on biography then. And I immediately panicked and began to mutter something ungracious about not wanting or being able to make major statements about anything. Uh, and the conversation rather petered out as we were in the middle of an um, unseasonal snowstorm in Santa Fe uh, at the time. There were plenty of other things to talk about. But I realized afterwards that my resistance to his question had to do not just with the secret anxieties which perhaps many of us have about sounding authoritative about anything, but... The whole idea of biography, which I'm about to uh, suggest to you in these three talks, and that is that the process or art or craft or genre, you see, I don't know what to call it, um, doesn't lend itself to major statements. If by that is meant definitive conclusions, unarguable definitions, or clear-cut significance. My view of biography is that far from being the monolithic, conventional, solid object that it has long been seen as, it's a very muddled, gappy, relativist, uh, peculiar form of writing. It buries and conceals some things. It changes the contours of familiar landscapes. It can be difficult to wade through, and it can harbour some unexpected pitfalls, all rather like that snowstorm. Uh, I've decided to pick my way into this curious business of life writing, not by way of a major statement, though I suppose some generalisations may creep in, but by looking empirically at a series of case studies. And my main examples will be Shelley, Jane Austen, and Virginia Woolf, who are all three hotly contested biographical subjects. Um, I've given you a rather long uh, uh, pack of handouts uh, for this lecture. Please don't succumb to handout anxiety. Um, I shan't get to them quite yet, and I'm not going to uh, go th read through every word, but I'm hoping they're going to become useful, and I will be reading some of them, uh, and they might be useful perhaps to look back on too. Um, Biographies are full of verifiable facts, but they're also full of things that aren't there. Absences, gaps, missing evidence, knowledge or information that has been passed from person to person, losing credibility or shifting shape on the way. Biographies like lives are made up of contested objects, relics, testimonies, versions, letters. What does biography do with the things that can't be Fixed the things that go missing, the body parts that have been turned into legends and myths. A few years ago, a popular biographer who had allowed doubts and gaps into the narrative of a historical subject was reprimanded for sounding dubious, for, I think, read, I don't know, one of her critics wrote crossly. But more recently, biographical uncertainty has become a respectable topic of discussion, and when people talk about this, they tend to start by quoting Julian Barnes's Flaubert's Parrot, which is what I'm about to do. You can define a net in one of two ways, depending on your point of view. 
Normally you would say that it is a meshed instrument designed to catch fish, but you could, with no great injury to logic, reverse the image and define a net as a jocular lexicographer once did. He called it a collection of holes tied together with string. You can do the same with biography. The trawling net fills, then the biographer hauls it in, sorts, throws back, stores, fillets, and sells. Yet consider what he doesn't catch. There is always far more of that. The biography stands fat and worthy burgerish on the shelf, boastful and sedate. A shilling life will give you all the facts, a ten-pound one, all the hypotheses as well. But think of everything that got away, that fled with the last deathbed exhalation of the biographer. Well, we all know stories of what falls through the net of biography. Many of these are bonfire stories. Uh, the poet, biographer, and editor Ian Hamilton, who'd been severely singed in his attempt to write a life of Salinger, enjoyed himself in Keepers of the Flame in 92 with stories of widows and executors fighting off predatory biographers, of conflagrations of letters, of evidence being withheld. These stories all read like variants of Henry James's The Aspen Papers, which is compulsory reading on this subject, in which the predatory would-be biographer, the publishing scoundrel, is thwarted in his greedy desire to get hold of the papers of the great American romantic poet Geoffrey Aspen by the two protective solitary women who have inherited and who guard his legacy. Now, there are many real-life stories of this kind. Think of Byron's executor, publisher and friends gathering round the fireplace of John Murray's office in Albemarle Street in 1824 and one by one feeding the pages of Byron's memoir into the flames. Or Hardy spending six months of 1919 destroying most of his life's papers while setting up a conspiracy with his second wife that she pretend to author the biography he was actually writing himself or Cassandra Austin destroying those letters of her sister, which may have uh, contained revealing personal material. I'll come back to that tomorrow. Or Elizabeth Gaskell reading but feeling unable to use Charlotte Bronte's passionate love letters to Monsieur Eger in a biography which precisely set out to protect her against charges of impurity or Ted Hughes, destroying Sylvia Plath's last two journals and then publishing his own edition of the rest. Many literary biographers are are, uh, affected in some way by these uh, bonfire stories. Writing on Willa Cather, I came up against her directive in her will of 1943 that none of her letters should ever be quoted, with the result that they're paraphrased, usually to her disadvantage, alongside her command that no adaptations or dramatizations should be made of her work, whether by electronic means now in existence or which may hereafter be discovered. It's pretty (laughs) self-defensive. One of the significant gaps in the Wolf archive is the apparent lack of any letters between her and her brother Adrian. And as a consequence, that relationship has never properly come into focus in in her life story. And the friendship between Edith Wharton and and Henry James is a challenge to her biographers because James made a bonfire of nearly all the letters he had from her, which as a result have to be decoded from his letters to her. Uh, These kinds of stories are often talked about as illustrations, as in the Aspen Papers, of the battle for possession that is always fought over a famous literary life, and hence uh, Antonia Byatt's novel, Possession. Uh, But it's not that battle that interests me so much here, as the question of what biographers do with the things that go missing or with contested objects. Biographers try to make a coherent narrative out of missing documents as well as existing ones, a whole figure out of body parts. Some body parts literally get 
into the telling of the stories in the form of legends or rumours or contested possessions. Body parts are conducive to myth-making, and biographers in turn have to sort out the myths from the facts. There's a tremendous fascination with the bodily relics of famous people, and the stories of such relics have their roots in legends and miracles of saints, which are the distant ancestors of biography. But they persist in a secular age, rather in the way that urban myths do, and are some of the things that biographers have to decide how to deal with. These body parts stories, uh, with which I've developed an unhealthy fascination, play into the subject's posthumous reputation, sometimes with suspicious appositeness. Uh, we might expect Joan of Arc's heart, and it is sometimes added her entrails, to have survived the flames and be thrown into the River Seine. It seems fitting, too, that Sir Thomas More's head boiled and impaled on a pole over London Bridge is supposed to have been secretly taken by night by his daughter, Margaret Roper, to St. Dunstan's Church in Canterbury, which, after the beatification of More in the 19th century, became a pilgrimage shrine. Charlotte Young, in A Book of Golden Deeds, retells, without much conviction, the old story that in the boat, Margaret looked up and said... That head has often lain in my lap. I would that it would now fall into it. And at that moment, it actually fell, and she received it. Now, that is probably the kind of story best ignored by biographers. There are, there are stranger stories of the fate of relics. Napoleon's penis is said to have been chopped off by the abbe who administered the last rites, and since then has been, as it were, passed around. It's been displayed and auctioned and sold many times, last heard of in the possession of an American urologist. But possibly, who knows, buried all this time in the crypt at the Hotel des Invalides. Hardy's body was interred in Poet's Corner, but after an argument between his friends and his family, his heart was buried in his wife Emma's grave at Stinsford Church near Dorchester, carried in an urn to its resting place with great solemnity by a procession of gentlemen in suits and hats. There's a wonderful photograph of this in the church. On the tomb it says, Here lies the heart of Thomas Hardy. Rumour has it that Hardy's housekeeper, after the death and the extraction of the heart, placed it in a biscuit tin on the kitchen table, and that when the undertaker came the next day, he found an empty biscuit tin, and Hardy's cat, Cobby, looking fat and pleased. The story then divides. In one branch, a pig's heart replaces Hardy's in the urn, but in the other, I'm afraid, Cobby is executed by the undertaker and replaces his master's heart. Either way, this rural myth is probably more useful for a life of Cobby than a life of Hardy. The story of Einstein's brain is intriguingly grotesque, too. After a pathologist from Kansas, Thomas Harvey, performed Einstein's autopsy in 1955, he made off with the brain, claiming that he would investigate and publish his findings on it. He cut the brain into 240 pieces and at various times doled out bits to scientific researchers. In 1978, a reporter tracked down Dr. Harvey in Kansas and was shown the brain of Einstein kept in two mason jars in a cardboard box. Uh, And in a book called Driving Mr. Albert, A Trip Across America with Einstein's Brain, Michael Pataniti described a journey with Dr. Harvey and his sacred specimen in which he meditates on the peculiar motives for such relic freaks, as he calls them. Um, I will give you, before I leave this irresistible subject and go on to my main case study, I just want to give you one more famously confused example, which is the uncertainty that surrounds the bones of Yeats. Yeats was buried on the 30th of January 1939 in an Anglican cemetery in France at Roquebrune. His wife, George, took out a temporary 10-year lease, she thought, 
on the gravesite. Plans to bring his body home to Sligo in September 1939 were thwarted by world events. In 1947, it was discovered that the concession had run out after five years, not ten, and that Yeats's bones had been removed to the ossuary. Very confused negotiations followed between George Yates, some of Yeats's friends, the municipal and church authorities, and the French government. In March 1948, the remains were identified, though leaving some room for uncertainty, and placed in a new coffin. And in September 1948, the coffin was taken in state from Rockbrun to Galway. The reinterment ceremony at Drumcliffe on 17th of September 1948 took place with enormous crowds in attendance. And the poet's verse was, sometime later, duly inscribed on the tombstone, cast a cold eye on life, on death, horsemen pass by. But rumours persisted that the bones had got mixed up in the ossuary. Louis McNeese at the funeral said they were actually burying a Frenchman with a club foot. <laughs> Roy Foster's Life of Yeats takes a laconic and brisk line on all this, since in his view, posthumous legends about body parts have no place have no meaning for the life. The legend of a mystery burial or even an empty coffin, he notes dispassionately, sustains a kind of mythic life, as with King Arthur or, more appositely, Charles Stuart Parnell. What interests Foster about Yeats's death is that in his last days, Yeats showed no interest at all in the systems of occultism and supernaturalism that had so preoccupied him. He made no mention of the afterlife, but concentrated exclusively on finishing his last poems. His last conscious act, says Foster, was to revise a contents list for an imagined last volume of poems. So what, if anything, are biographers supposed to do with such mythical body part stories? They can easily be set aside and ignored, but these compelling relics fit in with our deep fascination with deathbed scenes and last words, what Frank Commode calls our deep need for intelligible ends. We're all fascinated by the manner of the subject's death, and if there are legends about the last moments of the, su- of the subject or stories about what happened to their bodies after death, most of which fall into the category of unverifiable things or contested objects. It's a rare biographer who risks taking no notice of such stories, even if the biographer may rationally judge that they have nothing to do with the life story. They still seem to play a part in the meaning of the life. How such matters should be dealt with in the biographical narrative involves tricky questions of tone and judgment, often involving a standoff between uh, skepticism and superstition, rationalism and sentimentalism. But most biographers do concern themselves uh, with afterlives as as well as with lives. And one of the most complicated and emotionally charged examples in British biography of the contested use of sources of rival versions and myth-making in which a body part comes to symbolize the subject's afterlife is the story of the death of Shelley. And that's what I'm now going to talk about. This will break. Shelley's great biographer, Richard Holmes, has written several times about this, once in his biography of 1974, once in the chapter called Exiles in Footsteps of 1985, which movingly retraced his own steps as Shelley's biographer, and once in a more recent essay on the legends about Shelley that followed his death. 
In Footsteps, he began his looking back process on the writing of Shelley's life by remembering what he had wanted to do as Shelley's biographer in the 1970s. When he started work, Holmes said, he was faced with a received biographical image of Shelley's adult character. This received image had three powerful components, says Holmes, all of which he wanted to explode. One was the angelic personality of popular myth, the aerial syndrome, with its strong implication that Shelley was somehow not of this world, aerial, ethereal, uh, physically incompetent, um, ineffectual. The second concerned his radical politics, which had always been treated as essentially juvenile uh, and incompatible with his mature lyric gift as a writer. Holmes wanted to show, I'm quoting him, that Shelley's poetic and political inspirations were closely identified. The third was the prevailing attitude to Shelley's emotional and sexual makeup, where he cites Matthew Arnold reviewing Edward Dowden's biography of Shelley in 1886 with horror at what it revealed of the poet's irregular relations. And Holmes, who in footsteps rather endearingly describes his own experiences and friendships in the 60s, 1960s, as being rather like those of the Shelley circle, is not shocked or horrified and wants to understand how Shelley's principles of free love could have, could have led to such chaos and, and, and personal suffering. Matthew Arnold's distaste at Shelley's morals formed part of a 19th and early 20th century story of posthumous protection and accusation, which Holmes outlines at the start and at the end of his Shelley biography. He kind of comes back to it in a circle, and this is the first quote on on your sheet. This is how he tells it. I'll run through this one rather fast because it's just setting up the story. Shelley's exile, his defection from his class and the disreputability of his beliefs and behavior had a tremendous effect on the carefully partisan handling of his biography by the survivors of his own circle and generation and even more so by that of his sons. In the first, the generation of his family and friends, fear of the moral and social stigma attached to many incidents in Shelley's career prevented the publication or even the writing of biographical material until those who were in possession of it, like Hogg, Peacock and Trelawney, were respectable Victorians in their 60s who were fully prepared to forget, to smudge, and to conceal. In the second generation, control of the Shelley papers passed to Boscombe Manor and to Percy Florence Shelley's wife, Lady Jane Shelley, who made it her life work to establish an unimpeachable feminine and Victorian idealization of the poet. This crucial period of Shelley's studies was crowned by Edward Dowden's two-volume standard, Life of 86, whose damaging influence is still powerfully at work in popular estimates of Shelley's writing and character. Uh, The Shelley scholar Timothy Webb describes the shrine at Boscombe Manor in more detail. He says that Lady Shelley kept the poet's hair, his manuscripts, limited access for true believers only, his books and his heart, or was it his liver, which had been rescued from the flames at Fiareggio. Before you could enter the shrine, you had to remove your hat. And there's Shelley's heart at last, and I'll come back to it. The Shelley story evolved through tremendous battles over materials and versions. Friends and family competed over their account of Shelley, censoring each other and changing their own stories. For over a 100 years, accusations and counter-accusations flew of lies and censorship and even forgery. There's a splendidly obstreperous book of 1945, completely unread now, I think, except by Shelley's scholars, by someone called Roger Smith called The Shelley Legend, which accused Lady Shelley of being terrified lest the facts of Shelley's sex life should become public and of making her uh, uh, she made herself a centre of conspiracy says Smith to keep these facts hidden Richard Holmes says in his biography where events reveal Shelley in an unpleasant light for instance his abandonment of 
of his first wife, Harriet, her subsequent suicide when heavily pregnant, Shelley's atheism, the original texts and commentaries have attracted suppressions, distortions, and questions of doubtful authenticity originating from Victorian apologists. And this is the interesting thing is that this is still going on long after these attempts at censorship, long after the facts of Shelley's life have all been scrupulously explored. There are still competing versions of the life story. Blame and accusation are still in play. And in a case like Shelley's, the posthumous life of the subject has as much to do with the writing of biography as the life itself. And one of the most important ingredients in the making of the Shelley legend was the story of what happened to Shelley's dead body. I'm going to have to remind you again so that it's in your imaginations of the, of the famous tragic story of the death of Shelley. And I, I apologize to you if it's very, very well known to you. It probably is. In April 1822, the Shelleys and their friends moved after a winter in Pisa to the Casa Magni at Lerici on the Gulf of La Spezia. The household consisted of Percy and Mary Shelley and little Percy, Claire Claremont, Jane Williams and Edward Williams. Claire's daughter by Byron, Allegra, died in April. Mary, two of whose children had died, had a miscarriage in July, and so both women were ill and distressed. Byron and his flamboyant entourage were at the Palazzo Lanfranchi in Pisa. Lee Hunt and his family were arriving in July. There was a plan that Hunt, Byron and Shelley should start a magazine. Shelley was writing The Triumph of Life. Byron was writing Don Juan. Byron and Shelley, with the help and advice of their new friend, the swashbuckling adventurous Edward Trelawney and a Captain Roberts, had become addicted to sailing. Byron was having a large schooner built called the Bolivar, Shelley's smaller boat was called the Don Juan, though he had wanted to call it Ariel. In June, it was refurbished by some accounts unwisely with new topmast rigging. Shelley and Edward Williams and Captain Roberts sailed on the Don Juan down the coast to meet Lee Hunt, who had newly arrived at Leghorn, which was the English name for Livorno, on July the 1st, 1822, to help them get settled at Pisa. On the 8th of July, Shelley, Williams, and the ship boy, Charles Vivian, set sail from Livorno to return to Lerici on a stormy day. A squall broke out in the Gulf of La Spezia. The Don Juan went down under full sail, and they were all drowned. The women were waiting for them at the Casa Magni. It took another 10 days of agonized and confused waiting and searching in which Trelawney played a leading part before the bodies were washed up and the news of the deaths was confirmed. The bodies were buried in quicklime on the shore to avoid infection. On the 13th of August, after getting permission from the authorities, Trelawney, Byron and Hunt, with soldiers, attendants and onlookers, dug up Williams's body and burnt it on a pyre. And on the 14th of August, they repeated the ceremony for Shelley on the beach at Viareggio. The telling of this story formed a central part in the making of the Shelley legend, and it was seized upon with gusto by the main players. I'm going to give you, and this I will read you uh, uh, in, in total, part of, a short part, actually, of Edward Trelawney's 1858 version, which was written 36 years after the event. This has been variously described as a semi-fictionalized account and one of the great purple passages of romantic literature. Um, I think you have to get the full flavor of this. So this is Trelawney. The first indication of their having found the body, and this is the body of Williams, was the appearance of the end of a black silk handkerchief, Then some shreds of linen were met with and a boot with the bone of the leg and the foot in it. 
On the removal of a layer of brushwood, all that now remained of my lost friend was exposed, a shapeless mass of bone and flesh. The limbs separated from the trunk on being touched. Is that a human body, exclaimed Byron? Why, it's more like the carcass of a sheep or any other animal than a man. This is a satire on our pride and folly. I pointed to the letters E-W-E-E-W on the black silk handkerchief. Byron, looking on, muttered, The entrails of a worm hold together longer than the potter's clay of which man is made. Hold, let me see the jaw, he added, as they were removing the skull. I can recognize anyone by the teeth with whom I have talked. I always watch the lips and mouth. They tell what the tongue and eye try to conceal. Williams's remains were removed piecemeal into the furnace. Don't repeat this with me, said Byron. Let my carcass rot where it falls. The funereal pyre was now ready. I applied the fire, and the materials being dry and resinous, the pine wood burnt furiously and drove us back. As soon as the flames became clear and allowed us to approach, we threw frankincense and salt into the furnace and poured a flask of wine and oil over the body. The Greek oration was omitted, for we had lost our Hellenic bard. It was now so insufferably hot that the officers and soldiers were all seeking shade. Let us try the strength of these waters that drowned our friends, said Byron, with his usual audacity. How far out do you think they were when their boat sank? If you don't wish to be put in the furnace, you'd better not try. You're not in condition. He stripped and went into the water, and so did I and my companion. Before we got a mile out, Byron was sick and persuaded to return to the shore. The lonely and grand scenery that surrounded us so exactly harmonized with Shelley's genius that I could imagine his spirit soaring over us. As I thought of the delight Shelley felt in such scenes of loneliness and grandeur while living, I felt we were no better than a herd of wolves or a pack of wild dogs in tearing out his battered and naked body from the pure yellow sand that lay so lightly over it to drag him back to the light of day. Even Byron was silent and thoughtful. We were startled and drawn together by a dull, hollow sound that followed the blow of a mattock. The iron had struck a skull and the body was soon removed. I've cut the transition from the Williams to the Shelley excavation. Lime had been strewn on it. This, or decomposition, had the effect of staining it of a dark and ghastly indigo colour. Byron asked me to preserve the skull for him, but remembering that he had formerly used one as a drinking cup, I was determined Shelley should not be so profaned. The limbs did not separate from the trunk as in the case of Williams's body, so that the corpse was removed entire into the furnace. More wine was poured over Shelley's dead body than he had consumed during his life. This, with the oil and salt, made the yellow flames glisten and quiver. The corpse fell open and the heart was laid bare. The frontal bone of the skull, where it had been struck with the mattock, fell off, and as the back of the head rested on the red-hot bottom bars of the furnace. The brains literally seethed, bubbled, and boiled as in a cauldron for a very long time. Byron could not face this scene. He withdrew to the beach and swam off to the Bolivar. Lee Hunt remained in the carriage. The only portions that were not consumed were some fragments of bones, the jaw and the skull. But what surprised us all was that the heart remained entire. In snatching this relic from the fiery furnace, my hand was severely burnt. And had anyone seen me do the act, I should have been put into quarantine. After cooling the iron machine in the sea, I collected the human ashes and placed them in a box, which I took on board the Bolivar. Byron and Hunt retraced their steps to their home, and the officers and soldiers returned to their quarters. Well, I hardly need to comment on Trelawney's highly coloured hamletizing of Byron and the deliberate opposition that he sets up between Byron's worldliness, appetites and cynicism and Shelley's ethereality, which goes all through Trelawney's memoir, or the pathetic fallacy which invests the scenery with the spirit of Shelley's genius or the pagan quality of the events, no prayers, Greek libations, and not least, you will have spotted the emphasis on Trelawney as the main heroic protagonist and the only true witness 
is the others either wandering off or averting their faces. It comes as no surprise to hear that Trelawney was given all his life to showing off the scars he got from plunging his hand and arm into the fire. He would sort of stop dinner parties in their tracks. This was not Trelawney's first nor his last version of the scene. His biographer, David Crane, notes, in account after account over the next 60 years, he would return to this summer of 1822 with ever new details, peddling scraps of history or bone with equal relish. As the retellings developed, Richard Holmes notes, the physical details became gradually less gruesome, and the romantic setting, which had originally been the backdrop to the cremation of Williams, was later transferred to the cremation of the poet. He wrote an earlier version at the time in 1822 in which he noted things like William's body had the eyes out and was fish-eaten. Shelley's body was in a stage of, state of putridity and very offensive. Both the legs were separated at the knee joint, the hands were off and the arm bones protruding, the skull black and no flesh or features of the face remaining, the flesh was of a dingy blue. Now there's none of that in the, uh, in the version I've just read to you, which is the, the more prettified version of, of 1858. And then again, when he comes back to the story in 1878, he embellishes further with such details as Shelley's jacket, the famous jacket. Je- Shelley had a black single-breasted jacket on with an outside pocket, as usual, on each side of his jacket. When his body was washed on shore, Aeschylus was in his left pocket, and Keats's last poems was in his right, doubled back as thrust away in the exigency of the moment. Of course, that's the bit that gets you, the bit about Keats's poems in the, in the pocket. Great confusion developed in these retellings about whether Trelawney had actually seen the bodies when they were first washed up, over what happened to the body of Charles Vivian, over whether Byron actually witnessed the burning of Shelley's body or not, over whether it was a copy of Aeschylus or Sophocles in the left pocket, over which page of Keats's last poems the book was doubled back at. Was it Lamia or Isabella or the Eve of St. Agnes, or whether anything survived of the volume except its covers, and of course over the size and the question of Shelley's heart. Now, notoriously unreliable though they were, and I've tried to give you that emphatically, these first-hand versions made their way irresistibly into the biographies of Shelley. Trelawney's testimony would be added to by those of Shelley's friends, Thomas Jefferson Hogg, Thomas Love Peacock, neither of whom was there, and Lee Hunt, who was a somewhat unreliable and emotional narrator. Here is Lee Hunt writing long after the event um, on the ceremony of the burning, alike beautiful and distressing. First of all, he sets himself up as the witness. I'll come in on on about the fifth line. None of the mourners, however, refuse themselves the little comfort of supposing that lovers of books and antiquity like Shelley and his companion, Shelley in particular with his Greek enthusiasm, would not have been sorry to foresee this part of their fate. The mortal part of him was saved from corruption, not the least extraordinary part of his history. Among the materials for burning, as many of the gracefuler and more classical articles as could be procured, frankincense, wine, etc., were not forgotten, and to these Keats's volume was added. The beauty of the flame arising from the funeral pile was extraordinary. The weather was beautifully fine. He goes on to a description of the beautiful Mediterranean air and the, the glassy essence of vitality in the air. You might have expected a seraphic countenance to look out of it, turning once more before it departed to thank the friends that had done their 
their duty. Yet, see how extremes can appear to meet, even on occasions the most overwhelming. On returning from one of our visits to the seashore, we dined and drank. I mean, Lord Byron and myself dined little and drank too much. I had bordered upon emotions which I have never suffered myself to indulge. The barouche drove rapidly through the forest of Pisa. We sang, we laughed, we shouted. I even felt a gaiety the more shocking because it was real and a relief. These eyewitness accounts, or eyewitness accounts, um, powerfully influenced the earliest full biography, the one that was written under the sanitizing control of Lady Shelley. Edward Dowden relied heavily on Trelawney and Hunt, though he censors, interestingly, that inappropriate scene of Hunt and Byron returning to Pisa, roaring drunk. Uh, Dowden takes from Trelawney's later version, the 1878 version, uh, an added detail that Shelley's heart was unusually large, uh, and a conveniently symbolic seabird, which only makes its appearance very late in the day uh, in the 1878 version, which sometimes seems to be a curlew and at other times a seagull, with, as one of Trelawney's editors put it, a ghastly, unappeased appetite for roast poet. Um, I'll pick up the quotation from Dowden just at the very end, towards the end of the second paragraph, after he's done his description. The relics of Shelley's heart, given soon after by Trelawney to Hunt, were at Mary Shelley's urgent request, supported by the entreaty of Mrs. Williams, confided to Mary's hands. After her death, in a copy of the Pisa edition of Adonais, at the page which tells how death is swallowed up by immortality, was found under a silken covering the embrowned ashes, now shrunk and withered, which she had secretly treasured. So Dowden takes us on to the next stage of the narrative, the quarrel over the possession of Shelley's heart. And what happened to Shelley's heart became, like everything else to do with his death, a source of controversy. Articles were written with titles like The Real Truth About Shelley's Heart. Um, The first editor of Mary Shelley's Letters and Journals, Frederick Jones, um, gave a commentary on this in his 1930s edition of her letters. He says, uh, much controversy has raged about Shelley's heart. And even at the present time, the 1930s, Roman tourist guides pointing to core cordium, I'll come back to core cordium, on the tombstone, tell travellers that the heart lies under the stone. That Trelawney did remove the heart and that it was kept by Mary, there can be no doubt. He says plenty of evidence for that. After Mary's death, Sir Percy and Lady Shelley kept it. And at the death of Sir Percy in 1889, it was placed in his coffin and buried with him in St. Peter's Churchyard in Bournemouth. So that's where Shelley's heart is. It's in Bournemouth. Um, but, you know, myths about Shelley's heart. So I was gripped and delighted this morning when I went in to do some work in the manuscripts room in, in the Firestone Library with the librarian who who greeted me and who knew, that maybe here tonight, knew, knew the lecture was happening, said, is it true that Byron's, Byron used Shelley's heart as an ashtray? Um, and I, I promised her I would use this tonight, but I thought, yes, it's still, these rumors are still going on. So the, the battle over the possession of Shelley's heart seems macabrely to embody the contest over who should own Shelley's story, that it was given reluctantly into Mary Shelley's hands by Shelley's male friends, points to Mary's position in the posthumous life of her husband. Mary's biographer Miranda Seymour, who set out to defend Mary against what she saw as as a concerted effort to sideline and denigrate her by Shelley's friends and biographers, including Holmes, whose picture of Mary Shelley, according to Seymour, is of a sulky, nagging wife, 
gives a partisan account of Mary's role in the events. As his bones shriveled to ashes on the shore, Mary's relationship with Shelley was already being judged. No precious relic was brought back for for her from the funeral pyre. This was the age in which, without photographs, fragments of the dead were invested with the value of talismans. Byron's choice, the skull, fell to pieces in the flames. This is a slightly different version of some of the ones we've already heard. Trelawney burned his hands in seizing a fragment of jawbone. Hunt took another. The heart, or the part of the remains which seemed most like a heart, failed to burn while exuding a liquid, and she has a footnote to this. The heart survival in intense heat is hard to explain, even if it had been in an advanced state of calcification. It is possible that the object snatched from the flame was the poet's liver. Trelawney snatched it out. Hunt requested and received it. When Mary asked if she might have the heart herself, Hunt refused to surrender it. It took a reproachful letter from Jane Williams to Hunt to compel a surrender. The heart was rediscovered after Mary Shelley's death, wrapped in silk between the pages of Adonais. It had lain inside her travelling desk for almost 30 years. The task of defending and enhancing her husband's reputation would be her great work for the future, her consolation for the remorse she now felt. And you can see from that biography, set against Richard Holmes's biography, that the, pat- the battle for possession over Shelley's heart, it was his heart, has not come to an end. Mary Shelley's anguished letters at the time of Shelley's death to their mutual friend Mariah Gisborne immediately began this process of Shelley's idealization for which Mary has been much reviled um, and on which Holmes has commented the legend of his death transformed his life almost beyond recovery. For Mary... Shelley's heart at once took on the mythical resonance it has continued to have since then as the unconsumable, immortal part of the poet. And Adonais, Shelley's elegy for Keats, became his own elegy, as she says in the first of these letters to Gisborne. I'm actually just going to read the second one, August 27th, 1822. I will say nothing of the ceremony since Trelawney has written an account of it. That's very interesting that, you know, that she, she, she immediately says, I you know, there's a rival account, the sense of accounts jostling against each other. I will only say that all except his heart, which was unconsumable, was burnt, and that two days ago I went to Leghorn and beheld the small box that contained his earthly dross, that form, those smiles, great God. No, he is not there. He is with me, about me, life of my life and soul of my soul. If his divine spirit did not penetrate mine, I could not survive to weep thus. And that spiritualized Shelley would inspire such romantic versions as André Moua's Ariel, A Shelley Romance of 1924, translated by Ella Darcy, very popular in its time in which Shelley's parts are always sort of pulsating. His soul is clipped in a net woven of dew dreams. His blood is always freezing and his heart is forever standing still or pounding in his breast. Mary's sacred heart, kept in the pages of Adonis, is a perfect example of a contested body part whose possession and appropriation can stand in for the whole biographical history of the subject. Writing desolately in her journal for the 11th of November, 1822, after she's been accused by Lee Hunt of cold-heartedness, Mary cries out, A cold heart? Have I a cold heart? Yes, it would be cold enough if all were as I wished it, cold or burning in that flame for whose sake I forgive this and would forgive every other imputation, that flame in which your heart, beloved one, lay unconsumed. Where are you, Shelley? My heart is very full tonight. I shall write his life. She doesn't write his life. That heartfelt quotation seems uncannily to sum up the biographer's question. Where are you, Shelley? Who owns you? Who who do you belong to? Mary's possessive lamentation can be set against another act of posthumous appropriation carried out by Trelawney in the Protestant cemetery at Rome. 
story, which I will tell incredibly quickly. Trelawney's management of Shelley's tomb is another gripping story in itself. Joseph Seven who was sadly taking care of the plans for his own friend Keats's tombstones, was suddenly confronted with the extraordinary figure of Trelawney, whom he describes in a fine letter of April 1823 as this cockney corsair, this pair of mustachios, this Lord Byron's jackal. And Trelawney completely took over, uh, insisted on moving Shelley's ashes to a site near Keats's grave, insisted, of course, on having a space for Trelawney right next to Shelley, uh, and on choosing the wording for the tombstone. And here it is at the top he had those words core cordium heart of hearts engraved perfect fodder for those Roman tour guides and beneath them were the lines from the tempest nothing of him that doth fade but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange rich and strange indeed is the posthumous life of Shelley but Richard Holmes in his biography would have none of all this He calls Mary's identification of Adonais with Shelley rather than with Keats a sentimental half-truth, and he will have no truck with any of the versions of Shelley's death that I've been describing. This is how Holmes tells the story. The bodies of Shelley, Edward Williams, and Charles Vivian were eventually washed up along the beach between Massa and Viareggio ten days after the storm. The exposed flesh of Shelley's arms and face had been entirely eaten away, but he was identifiable by the nankeen trousers, the white silk socks beneath the boots, and Hunt's copy of Keats's poems doubled back in the jacket pocket. To comply with the complicated quarantine laws, Trelawney had the body temporarily buried in the sand with quicklime and dug up again on the 15th of August to be placed in a portable iron furnace that had been constructed to his specification at Livorno and burnt on the beach in the presence of Lee Hunt, Lord Byron, some Tuscan militia and a few local fishermen. Much later, Shelley's ashes were buried in a tomb also designed by Trelawney in the Protestant cemetery at Rome after having remained for several months in a mahogany chest in the British Council's wine cellar. In England, the news of Shelley's death was first published by the Examiner on the 4th of August and on the following evening by the Courier, whose article began, Shelley, the writer of some infidel poetry, has been drowned. Now he knows whether there is a god or no. (laughs) Very good. Shelley's heart is a deliberate gap here a body part that goes missing in the interest of dealing with a particular problem in literary biography and as a way of getting out of a biographical trap in which, as Holmes put it many years later, biography is caught and frozen, so to speak, in the glamorous headlights of Shelley's death. Okay, that should be the end of that, but I did promise you some lobsters. Uh, They shouldn't be here at all, really. Uh, But they struck me as a perfect comic example to set very briefly against the tragic one that I've been looking at of things that go missing in literary biography. So this is just a kind of little irresponsible coda by way of suggesting to you that missing parts in biography can work in all kinds of different ways. To turn from the story of Shelley to the story of Pepys is to make a grotesquely violent jump from tragedy to comedy, from the ethereal to the robust, and from posthumous myth-making to material realities. Pepys' story is simply steaming with body parts and objects of consumption from the bosoms and bottoms that he so loved to fondle to the parmesan cheese he made sure to bury in his garden during the Great Fire of London. 
Claire Tomalin, Pepys' most recent and most praised biographer, rather than trying to deal with unverifiable legends, has the pleasure of plunging into a life full to the brim with authentic, factual, bodily, everyday materials. But she also had an immense challenge to deal with in writing this life. Pepys' diary begins on the 1st of January, 1660, when he's 27, I think I've got that right, and ends on the 31st of May, 1669. It's nine years out of a 70-year life. When she has the diary, it provides so much material that this is sometimes overpowering. She has to paraphrase and to select. When she hasn't got the diary, she has to hypothesize. And I'm going to give you one minute example of an oddity that has been tidied up in paraphrase by the biographer of a thing that goes missing in her life of Pepys, which suggests, I think, a certain kind of biographical difficulty. On the 13th of June, 1666, Pepys was saying grace at dinner. And in the middle, he says in the diary, my mind fell upon my lobsters. And he jumps up, exclaiming, Kudzooks, what has become of my lobsters? He had bought two fine lobsters that day, but he had left them in a hackney coach. Tomalin mentions this twice in her biography, once to show how Pepys likes to write down the things that he says. He likes writing down kudzooks. Um, and once to display his extraordinary energy, because on the same day that he loses his lobsters, he also attends the funeral of Admiral Mings, goes to a board meeting in Whitehall, visits the Exchequer and the studio of a painter who is doing a portrait of his father, and goes to his mistress in Deptford, where he did what he would with her. Uh, He gets a boat home, drinks a pint of sack, and buys three eels from a fisherman. Uh, No wonder he forgot his lobsters. Uh, But what Claire Tomalin omits is that he remembers that he forgot them and bursts out with this exclamation in the middle of saying grace. She never, if you go back to the diary, she never says that. The story has been slightly flattened. It's lost a little of its particularity and its idiosyncrasy. I'm not reproaching her. I'm merely saying that the biographer can't do everything. Biography has to omit and to choose. And in the process, some things go missing. In this case, just the whiskers of a pair of crustaceans that fell through the holes in the net. Thank you. Thank you very much for that engaging talk. Professor Lee's second lecture will be tomorrow night in Mikash, same time, and Wednesday night here again. Thank you very much. Well, would, um, I mean, I was, re- I was sort of breezed. Okay. It's very late, so I'm sure. No, that's not a problem. If you would like to entertain them. very happy to. Or you'd like to save up your questions for. Go ahead. Yes. Do you want the mic? Or do you want me to repeat you back to yourself? Take the mic. Take the mic. Yeah, good. Uh, I read that you're currently working on a biography. Yeah. How's that going? Uh, Fine. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I'm working on um, Edith Wharton. Um, and I'm about uh, sort of something like halfway through. That's what biographers always say when you ask them. They say, I'm about halfway through. Um, yes, it's an extremely challenging and, and interesting story, and there is a huge amount of material, so the, the process of selection and ordering is, is a very 
you know, it's one that I'm thinking about a great deal because I think you know, biography, as is apparent from what I've just been saying, is a completely artificial structure. Um, it's not the same as a life. <laughs> so you've got to find some way of organizing and structuring um, the material. Where are her body parts? Um, they're, in a, they're in the Protestant cemetery at Versailles, in a rather untended and neglected grave. And I always think that if she'd stayed in America and, you know, died in Lennox, there'd be a society for the preservation and upkeep of the grave of Edith Wharton, and they'd come and put flowers on the grave. But I put flowers on the grave, but it would have been a very long time since anybody else had. And she was buried next to Walter Berry, who was her life's great companion and but there was unfortunately enough space between them for another grave to intervene so they're not next to each other anymore which is sad it's rather a lonely grave weedy it was very weedy and because she was such a great gardener and such an organized person and as she put it i'm a rather housekeeperish person um i weeded her grave <laughs> i think i need someone else don't i but, but thank you <laughs> yeah no one else wants to ask a question. They want to go home. Yeah. Go to ask me about peeps. No. <laughs> okay. Um, my question is, is to do with the other thing that remains after authors die, and that's the texts that they've written. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the text and, and, you know, what, what remains when... But what we're interested in as biographers mm. with, with writers when they're alive is, is what they've written. Yeah, and, why and else would we be writing about them? Indeed. That's a, that's a so, challengeable position too, of course, because plenty of people get written about who don't leave texts, but for other reasons. But go on, sorry. Well, so, so is, is there in, the Shelley, um, in Shelley's afterlife uh, also a, um, a veneration of, or, or a, an anti-veneration of his texts? There is a problem with them, isn't there? Because they didn't circulate... Um, in yes. the obvious you know, mainstream literary marketplace yeah. uh, in but 19th century. I need a Shellian, and it's quite apparent that I'm not a Shellian, but there's obviously, yeah, there's a kind of myth about the text, isn't there? And there's a well, is, is, is it not Holmes's, as I recall from reading Holmes years ago, um, that the, the texts circulate um, amongst a sort of working-class readership? I don't know. I don't know what the class of the read. Somebody here would know. Somebody, yes. somebody here knows this story. To pass the mic. I think the real point you're getting at is that the. Mike. Sorry. Mike. Beg your pardon. I shouldn't be speaking. That's However, right. <laughs> um, I mean, what happened really is that the text after Mary got at them got rather kind of uh, moved towards the angelic. The whole question about circulation of the text in the working class is a quite different issue. He had no control over that. Right. Exactly. So he becomes a kind of chartist Bible. It's actually not the text, but the footnotes of uh, the, what's the, the Queen Mab, uh, which, because they uh, paraphrase uh, the basic documents on atheism, free love, vegetarianism, uh, indeed, uh, spread the gospel. But there's another, there's a connection. So there's a very good essay by a guy called Andrew Bennett uh, called Shelley's Ghost. It's in the 
Cambridge Companion to Romanticism, the one that Lucy Newlin edited. And it's about how Shelley seemed to be creating for himself in his writing a, kind, a sense of a posthumous ghostly life. I mean, Bennett's contention is that, um, you know, Shelley saw his posthumous life coming um, uh, in, the, in, in the way that he would influence his, his readers and in the way that myths would be made about him. I don't know enough about Shelley to know whether that's really the case. Um, but it's an interesting argument because some writers don't, I think. I think some writers live much more. I mean, Pepys would be one. I don't think Pepys thinks about posterity when he's writing his diary, actually. I may be wrong. But you know, I think there are some writers who are much more conscious of their afterlife uh, before it's happened, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Uh, yes. A wonderfully enthralling lecture, and I was wholly captivated and persuaded. But can I? But <laughs> there is a but coming here, which is that as you were describing so vividly and persuasively uh, the problems of reconciling different accounts of certain historical events, mainly built around people's lives and deaths, I was trying to work out what, if anything, was, as it were, uniquely here the problem of a biographer since mm. it seemed to me that what you were actually giving us was a wonderful specific example of the problems that always face anybody who tries to write about any past events. <laughs> That's to say that there are always at least three accounts sure, and, they don't sure. con and they don't converge uh, or connect and it's very difficult. So what? I wondered if you were wanting to make a case that there was something specific to the problems and challenges of being a biographer, biography. or whether yeah. you're wanting to say Rather this being is historian the way or, yeah. the past works if you do it in a biographical manner. I think it goes back to what I started half jokingly, but actually I, meaning, meaning it by, by saying, which is this whole question about authority. I mean, it seems to me that for a long time there's been a concept of biography as somehow a you know, definitive, authoritative process and uh, you know so you have that thing about the authorized biography which very often means the censored biography uh, because you know the, the, the biographer has been under enthralled to the widow or, or whatever um, but I think it's only actually relatively recently uh, that it's become sort of okay to talk about biography as a uh, um, as, as a, as a site of contestation as a you know as a, as a place where different vers versions do jostle and I think one and then you have a, I mean I think the real predicament for the biographer is whether to include variants or whether to insist often uh, and I'm going to talk about this a bit tomorrow with the Jane Austen biographies often by doing down your rivals you know sort of you know you put yourself in position and you do down the opposition um, uh, in order to make your space for the life story I guess historians do this too and I'm sure literary critics do it yeah of course we do and people do but with biography it's particularly acute because you're constantly aware of your shoulder all the time that there is as it were this you know people have paid their money and they want the true version. I think it's much more uh, a pressing case with political biography or with historical biography rather than with um, a literary biography where, you know, we're allowed to play around uh, a bit more. But what was the name of that guy who wrote the biography of Reagan called Dutch re recently? Yes, and he... Edmund Morris, probably published by Princeton University Press. Don't tell me. I'm a, yeah, okay. Uh, and he, um, you know, he, in, in this, I mean, he's had a fantastic 
fantastically large advance. And he'd been at these papers for 15 years or something. And then he played around with it and he deconstructed it and he introduced himself as a character uh, in an Ackroydian manner. Um, uh, you know, and had Reagan come in as a sort of fictional character and meeting him when he couldn't have been born yet. And, and in my memory, there was a sort of outraged outcry about this because people wanted their money back. You know, they felt that the, 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 the responsibility of the political biographer was to tell the story. Um, so I suppose it's in those terms that, that, that rival versions become an acute problem because you've got to decide whether to get rid of the rival versions, stomp them down, uh, or in some way make it clear that there are things that could be interpreted different, different ways. Yeah. 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 Well, you, um, how do you decide which is legend and which is which is fact? Um, I mean, there. I suppose an obvious example is the nature of Virginia Woolf's mental illness, where all kinds of appropriations have been made and all kinds of. Um, versions and narratives, depending on the point of view of the narrator, uh, uh, have, have been uh, given. And mine is just another in, 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 that, in that series. And I think, I think what you do is attend as carefully as possible to the words of your subject. You attend also to the words of people who are the witnesses. And you take note, I think, of when things, I mean, this is what I was trying to get at today. You know, you take note of when things are first-hand or second-hand testimony. And, and you take note of the position that the, the person, I mean, I'm just writing at the moment about uh, a trip that Edith Wharton took with Bernard Berenson um, in 1913 when uh, she just got divorced and she was completely exhausted and she'd just finished the custom of the country. And she's very difficult to travel with. I mean, she was quite difficult to travel with anyway, but she was particularly difficult. She was completely exhausted. Bernard Berenson writes all these letters back to Mary Berenson saying, you know, it's completely impossible. She keeps altering the position of the bed in the hotel every time she gets to the hotel because she can't get a reading light from the bed because it's in the alcove and she sends all the meals back in every hotel. Uh, and you think, yeah, that's good. That's first-hand testimony. You know, clearly she was sending the meal. But maybe she maybe sent two meals back, you know, and he's kind of layering it a bit because he's also writing back to his wife who didn't like Edith Wharton very much and, and wanted also to reassure her that she was not a preferable traveling companion to her. So you have to, you know, you have to keep, as it were, going through the context of what is being said. And then I think you have to make some kind of sensible <laughs> decision about, you know, how bad a traveler Edith Wharton was. And it's a rather frivolous example. Um, you wanted to ask, yeah, behind the center. Hang on. About Mary Shelley, you said that she never wrote Percy's life. Uh, she was prohibited from doing that as a term of the annuity for her son, but she was very cagey about doing it. Anyway, she started to tell the story in her prefaces to the posthumous right. poems. That was suppressed by Sir Timothy. But in a series of headnotes to Shelley's poems in uh, the 1839 edition, she managed to tell quite a bit of the life. And by the time Frankenstein was, was republished in 1831, she was, she Percy Shelleyized that narrative right. and has yes. this famous introduction in which she managed to yeah. sneak in some of Shelley's yeah. life as well. So she really was doing her best she undercover her to tell the life. Yeah. She referred to the fragments, the manuscript fragments she had as Shelley's corpus. 
and she produced a lot of those texts for the first time right. in the posthumous edition. So she was recreating Shelley's body of work in the way that Nigel was interested right. in, in the textual corpus. And what was the audience for that then? I mean, uh, this might come back to this question I couldn't was, answer. Well, because Edward Muxon, um, a, you know, central London publisher, um, had the 1839 edition. So that, that was a big hit and became the foundation for Houghton's editing of Shelley and mm-hmm. Foreman's editing of Shelley all through the 19th century. And would that have had the same readers as the, the range of readers that... that, that no, Shelley had a rival press even in his own lifetime. He was being pirated by Richard Carlyle and the radical press, and he, had, he was very ambivalent about it. He was always moaning and complaining, as Wordsworth was, about not having a wide enough readership and then spinning it the way Milton did, fit audience though few, um, but was aware that he had a very wide readership um, in, in this demographic that was also very dicey for him, the radical press. And he was, you know, it was all piracy, so he wasn't making any money from it. But mm-hmm. that was his, that was his most widespread fame. And the contest over who Shelley was was really in his lifetime: was he a radical poet, or he was he the disembodied right. ethereal? Can vision? I ask you a question about those Mary? Sh- I mean, has anybody? Have you? I mean, has anybody, as it were, put together those parts of the body and made a kind of, as it were, you know, an edition which is Mary Shelley's Life of Shelley? I mean, have that, have all those disparate publications ever been put together in one volume because yeah, it I would mean, be the, a the prose i mean in, in the uh, um the Chatto edition, they have they have the right. prose. Um, certainly Mary Shelley's notes were reproduced by Shelley editors all the way through until the Oxford edition. Uh-huh. I mean, they were just the sort of standard... But I mean, have they been um, put, know, together, been put a together as a well, form I of life weirdly, writing? The, the Chatto Pickering edition does that just as Mary Shelley's prose. They get rid of Percy Shelley's body and they just have her, her various recollections, which... In some, going from the early early days, the Queen Mab controversies, all the way to the late to the late last works, tell a kind of literary biography of Shelley that also insinuates a lot about his political commitments right. and his social right. commitments. Well, I feel very relieved that we've had a, some real facts about Shelley now, and I think that's a very good point to which to quit. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you. You're welcome.